You're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Ahmed Munawar, and I'm so, so excited today to bring you Ian Brody. Ian is one of those people that I really, really looked up to way back when I was director of marketing for a boutique consulting firm. I was struggling. I didn't know the first thing about marketing. He was one of the voices that emerged who I really latched on to and I started paying a lot of attention to. And I learned so much from him about the art and the craft of marketing in a professional services environment. And even now, after starting boutique growth years later, Ian's one of those voices that I pay attention to religiously. So it's a great honor to have him on the show today. Ian and I talk about First of all, his personal journey as a consultant. Ian started out at a big firm before starting his own practice, like many of us. So that's always an interesting story to hear about how that transition went and some of the early struggles that Ian faced and how he overcame those struggles. But then we get into how to develop a distinctive point of view for your firm. This is one of those cornerstone ideas that Ian is really known for. He's got a free course called the Five Day Authority Challenge, which I highly, highly recommend that you go through, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But inside that course, one of the steps in the challenge is developing this idea of a distinctive point of view. And I asked Ian to unpack that idea for us in this episode, because I think that's really the piece that most people struggle with. And if you're not really sure if you have something that qualifies as a distinctive point of view, then you're going to want to listen to this episode. Show notes are at forecast.fm slash Brody. That's forecast.fm slash B-R-O-D-I-E. Before I let you go, if you haven't yet joined us inside our free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional service firms, you don't want to check that out inside the course. I will walk you through a step-by-step process that you can use to generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com. You can spell out five or use the number. Either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. With that, here is Ian Brody. Mr. Ian Brody, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a real pleasure. Glad to be here. Listen, Ian, I I know a lot of folks are familiar with the work that you're doing right now, the incredibly valuable work, and I'm very appreciative that you've come on the show to to share some time with us. I, I would love to hear the story of how Ian Brody got started in the early days as a consultant or a coach. Gosh, as it was very early days. So I, I had three phases to my career. Really, I had um, back in the in the late eighties, early nineties. I had a proper job. Um, it's so far away now. I barely remember it, but it was it was project management in R and D for a computer company here in the UK. Um, spent I think six seven years doing that. Had some promise, so ended up going off on an MBA to learn about management. But when I was there, I kind of fell in love with um, with marketing and business strategy and decided that was what I wanted to do um, and, and ended up going to consulting. So I ended up working for, um, primarily for Gemini Consulting, which kind of doesn't exist anymore, but was very prominent in the in the early mid 90s, um, eventually folded into Capgemini and Ernst & Young. But it was a very successful, very fast growth firm when I was there. 
I'm not saying those two things are correlated, but uh, but it was a great time to be there because we were growing incredibly fast, doing some really tremendous transformation work with clients um, and a lot of learning going on. And I got headhunted to work for another consulting firm, another quite big one. Um, that basically this helped set up their US business over in the UK and Europe. Um, and then and then in 2007, the third phase of my career began where I basically, by that stage, had got tired of all the travel and just wanted to do something more myself with with the despite being a director of the of the of the, the you know the final firm I worked for still felt as if I wanted more control over you know how things were run and what we focused on and so I set up business on my own in 2007 so when you first went out on your own what did you do what did that business look like that really well I, I had a bit of um messing about <laughs> first and I think that's kind of like a necessary phase um, I know everyone says you should specialize and 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 niche down, etc. But I think you know very early on, it's difficult to know what you should be focusing on until you've got some real world experience. Um, so initially, I, I knew that um, from my experience in Gemini, what I'd got good at obviously was consulting. I would I'd ended up managing bigger and bigger projects, and then I got quite good at selling consulting projects. Um, even though I really am not uh, a natural at selling at all, I'd kind of learned how to sell despite being naturally hopeless at selling. So I thought probably something I would do would be in the training, the coaching, the consulting field around sales. Um, and I'd done a lot of work with with manufacturing firms on on sales and marketing. And I thought that might be it. But it, it didn't take me long to realise. Probably took me a couple of months to realise as I, I traipsed around the northwest of England where I live, that the kind of manufacturing base was pretty much dead. <laughs> and there weren't really that many big firms willing to pay big, you know, big global consulting rates for, for, for me to come and help them. Um, but what I did find was that there were plenty of service businesses um, who, when, when I you know, spoke to them and spoke to other people who were consultants like me or coaches like me, you know, were really struggling at doing some of the things that I'd, I'd learned how to do really well in my time as a consultant working for some bigger firms. I was very lucky. Gemini was very good at selling. We had some of the best consulting salespeople there were, and that was where I picked up a lot of skills. Um, so it turns out um, I knew how to do things that lots of other consultants and coaches and lawyers and accountants and, and people in service businesses locally really wanted to know how to do. So after a few months, I switched tack to focus still on kind of marketing selling, primarily selling, I guess, um, but for professional service firms locally. Simply because they, you know, from talking to them, they they, they had a, a big need that I was able to help with. And I'm curious to hear about what that leap was like from, you know, the big firm environment, Gemini Consulting, where you've got staff and you've got support and, you know, you've got all the perks that come with the big firm and you as a consulting can focus on doing what you do best to them making that leap to, you know, presumably solo, independent consultant. How, how was that transition? Um, well, initially, it was very easy um, in that, you know, if you've been a consultant for a significant amount of time, usually you've built up a, a reasonable contact base. 
Um, now, obviously, like all, all you know, anyone with a, with a big firm, I had all sorts of restrictive covenants in my contract. I couldn't go after clients for at least six months that I'd been working with, etc. And of course, none of them were local. I'd wanted to cut down on my travel, and all my clients were in the US or France or, or the Netherlands or wherever. So that really wasn't an issue. But what I did have was I had lots of contacts with other consultants who I'd worked with over the years, and many of them had gone and set up their own firms or were working solo, working for other firms. So probably for about 12 months, 18 months, I got passed a lot of work by referral. So I was kind of building up my own business as I was getting passed a lot of work by referral. So actually, the initial period wasn't very difficult. It was after the referrals began to die out and I hadn't done enough to build up my own pipeline that that I kind of ran into a bit of a bit of a plateau, really. Um, and that that really was a a kind of wake up call that that I I thought yeah this is going to be relatively easy look at all this work coming in people I know continually pass it to me and then it kind of began to die off a bit and of course I was thinking well you know maybe it's just the recession you know after all it is 2009 things will look up the etc etc and of course it didn't turn up it got worse um and eventually I had to kind of relearn how to do things because as you said initially as a solo you don't have that brand name you don't have people going out getting business for you. I mean, I'd find found as a consultant, I was, I'd got very good once a client had a need and they wanted to speak to someone about a piece of work they needed. I was very good at going to talk to them about that piece of work and, and winning them as a client. What I really didn't enjoy and wasn't good at is, is the stuff from cold, you know, calling them from nothing or, or networking and schmoozing and all that kind of stuff. It's just not me. I, I like to think I'm kind of a nice guy, but I'd much prefer to sit and read a book quietly than I would um, to chat to people. So, uh, so it wasn't my natural style. And it took quite a while for me to figure out um, ways of marketing that worked for me as someone who wasn't a natural extrovert and wasn't someone who liked or was any good at cold calling or networking or all those other kind of skills. Now, the, this period where your business kind of plateaued because your referrals had tapped out and you hadn't yet built your own pipeline, did that coincide at all with the shift from manufacturing to service businesses? No, no, that happened. Uh, the shift happened very quickly. So the, the shift from manufacturing to service business happened after a couple of months. It was probably about a year or so later when I had a bit of a plateau um, where, uh, you know, the, the, the work had dried up from, from referrals. And did you have a lot of experience working with service businesses from your previous consulting uh, experience? No, but what I had was um, I had my own experience as a consultant. So essentially, you know, especially when it comes to marketing and sales, if you if you've learned how to sell consulting services, that's very much a very similar process to selling legal services, accounting services. Um, and because I was I had, you know, got very good at it. Um, I was able to I was able to teach accountants, I was able to teach lawyers, and eventually I was I was mainly able to teach um consultants and coaches. And and in fact the internet was kind of like the savior for me from from a number of perspectives. One is it it's you know not being a very social person. I I was able to get business over the internet. But the other thing was it, it the, the the web does that wonderful thing of, of giving you much greater geographic reach. Um so what what I found when I was working locally, and the, and this wouldn't be true if I'd been based in London or New York or a really big city, but frankly, I would have loved to have concentrated just on working with consultants and coaches because that's what I was, that's what all my experience was in, but there just weren't enough big enough consulting firms or, or coach, coaches, coaching firms locally 
for me to to build a business based on. So I had to stretch on the sides to talking to accountants, talking to lawyers, talking to surveyors and architects and people like that. Um, And it was harder for me to sell to them because they're not exactly the same as me, but many of them picked up that it was a very similar process. Um, and I was able to, you know, do free presentations, which got them to see that I knew what I was talking about. And then they would hire me to come and do a training course for them, etc. Um, but thanks to the web, um, I was able to specialise over time much, much more in just really consultants and coaches, which is my, my kind of heartland because that's all I've ever done since since 94 is being a consultant or a coach. So I have a, an awful lot of experience doing that. So essentially you made up for that, for the lack of experience working with service businesses as a consultant, you made up by that, but through your own kind of expertise in selling consulting services. And that's what people really latched on to. Yeah, they, they they drew they drew the analogy. I mean, there were you know so, some people, um, lawyers in particular, were a difficult sell. A lot of lawyers um, were maybe they're different now, but back in the day, a lot of lawyers would not consider you would, would kind of consider if you hadn't been a lawyer yourself, you didn't really understand what it took to sell legal services. I mean, the ones I worked with. Um, realized that wasn't the case and they were able to take on board. And thankfully, they realized also that consulting is usually, you know, probably about a decade ahead of law in terms of, of business development capabilities and skills and how well it, you know, how well they've developed them. Um, so they recognized there was a lot to learn. So those who were, you know, forward thinkers were happy to work with me. Those who were a bit, oh, well, he hasn't been a partner in a law firm. How can he possibly know what it takes to, to sell legal services? Didn't hire me. But there were enough of people. There were enough people who who did see the analogy that it worked. Yeah, no, I don't think much has changed as far as lawyers go. <laughs> I, I think it's is there's still yeah there's a small group of people who and they're usually involved in the legal marketing conversations who are really looking forward. They understand the profession is changing. Buyers are changing. Therefore, they they need to change. But yeah, by and large, I think lawyers they're they're looking for a lawyer, a partner, someone who's then gone out of law and then gone into business development to be their consultant or coach. So tell me a little bit about how your marketing evolved. And I'm a little bit curious about this because sounds like this is about now, you know, seven or eight years ago, the internet was a different place. You were marketing online. What did you find really worked for you? You know, I think I think that's a good point. It is a matter of of evolving with your market. Um, and sometimes I do see, you know, you see, you see that um, that the story that's trotted out here. Here are the exact steps that worked for me, as if the exact steps that worked for someone else would work for you. And it's not always the case. You really do have to find your own path, building on good general principles. So back in the day, seven or eight years ago, that you know the people, the place that people hung out was on blogs. You know, really, social media had not grown. I, mean, I was an early adopter of Twitter, um, but it was not. Uh, you know, a particular source of traffic or anything. So the the place where the action was was comments on blogs. That was social media back in those days. But that allowed me to form relationships. So what I did when I first set out was um, in order to help, you know, improve my own learning, I, I, I searched and I found as many as I could of um, of blogs, of, of, of useful resources about professional services, business development, assisted from people like Charlie Green, um, people like the, the Rain Today folks, Mike Schultz, um, uh, Ford Harding, who's, who's since retired, etc. And the first thing I did was, you know, I was reading their stuff, and and so I, you know, commented on their blogs because it seemed like a decent thing to do. Um, and they commented back, and we got into conversations, and eventually, you know, some of them picked up the phone, and we talked about working together and, and doing stuff like that. Um, and in parallel, I was doing my own blog mainly 
because I just had a lot I wanted to say. It was it was less, hey, I'll do this, it'll be great for business development, but I, you know, had things I wasn't seeing reflected um, in what I was reading elsewhere on the web that I kind of wanted to say about business development that I'd learned from my experience. So I so I created a blog and I found probably after about six months, the blog was getting way more traffic than my proper official website. So I closed down the proper official website and just stuck with the blog. Um, and it kind of grew from there. Now, eventually, you know, I evolved into email marketing. I'm kind of more involved in social media these days, although, frankly, I'm very careful in my use of time on social media um, and tend to use advertising on social media more than I do um, personal stuff. Uh, but I think you have to evolve with the market. I mean, you, you know, my my potential clients online were initially on, uh, you know, on other people's blogs, but that changed over time. So I think this is a good transition into the topic of today's conversation. Things have changed, clearly. Um, you know, blog commenting surely isn't what it used to be. <laughs> uh, I'm curious to hear, you know, what is your kind of recommended playbook for a consultant or a coach or a professional services provider that wants to build an online platform, attract clients online today? What do you tell them? Um, well, I, I, I typically tell them three things. I mean, the first thing is you have to be able to say something different. We are just overloaded with stuff today online, with with content that frankly is not all that great. Um, you know, you, you just see the same ideas repeated time and time again. If I see one more one, one more kind of strategy consultant tell me, the, or, or entrepreneurship consultant tell me, I ought not to be working in the business. I ought to be on, working on the business. I'll I'll probably explode. Or a leadership coach saying it's all about creating a vision. I mean, the, 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 there's just so much meh content that's just replicated and repeated um it's like it's like people have said you know the way to succeed is you've got to publish lots of content well it, it doesn't work if it's not interesting and different if it's just the same things that everyone is saying you're not really going to stand out so i think that's the first thing is you have to have a message that stands out from what everyone else is saying um and we can talk about what you know what needs to be in that message in a bit if you'd like but but it absolutely needs to stand out it needs to be different of course it needs to be valuable to your potential clients and then of course you've got to get that message to them and i favor direct methods i know there's a lot of most of the advice you get about about online marketing it seems to involve so much work and I'm a very lazy person personally and I really and although I've done my fair share of guest blog posting appearing on podcasts etc etc I don't want to spend all my time doing that I'd much rather be working with my clients um so you know I would while a lot of those other methods I have as kind of second rank and I'll do occasionally the number one method for me is to in a way do what Bruce Henderson did when he grew BCG and that was to to go direct to your target client so you you may know the story of, of Henderson when he set up BCG in 63 um you know, he did, that was 45 years after McKinsey started. He didn't have their alumni network. He didn't have their contacts. He didn't have the relationships they'd build up. But Henderson, of course, had brilliant ideas. And what he did is he just wrote those ideas down in Perspectives magazine, which was pocket-sized in those days, and he put them in the post to target clients. And, and eventually it worked. Eventually enough of his new ideas hit with target clients um, they read them. They thought, "Whoop, that's I've never thought of that before, but that seems like it could work." They got in contact, 
um, and, and he took it from there. So he went direct to his target clients. He didn't do really fancy marketing. He didn't hang around waiting for magazines to publish his stuff. He didn't try and spend three years writing a book and getting that out to people. He just wrote what he knew and posted it direct to his target clients. Now, of course, today, if we want to go direct to our target clients, that means online advertising. It means Google AdWords or LinkedIn ads or Facebook ads, depending on where your clients are. So that would be my, my first two steps. Number one, have something different to say that's valuable to your clients. It's going to get them to take notice of you. Secondly, get that thing you have to say directly to them with online advertising. And then thirdly, follow up. Um, I think we all know the the very first time you come into contact with a potential client, you know, the vast majority of them are not ready to buy immediately, um, partly because the timing's not right, but also partly because simply because you know, haven't built enough up enough trust and credibility. So you need to follow up. You need to follow up in a way that adds value. And I do that through email marketing. You could, if you wanted, do it by creating a group on LinkedIn or Facebook and culture, um, cultivating relationships in there. Um, you could do it with a Facebook Messenger bot if you wanted to be really fancy, but it doesn't really matter as long as you've got a systematic way of keeping in touch with potential clients. Could be personally, if you've got a small number of potential clients, really high value ones, you can do it personally. But as long as you have something different to say, go direct to those those potential clients and then keep in touch with them and, and follow up and add value. That's going to get your ideas and your ability to add value and your and and your ability to build a relationship working for you um, so that eventually you'll bring them on as clients. Well, I love that because it's so simple, right? And this is what I really appreciate about your your ideas in general, Ian, is you make it really simple and bite-sized and easy to easy to digest. You well, could say a hundred things. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I think. sorry to interrupt there, but I, I, I thought you, you just hit on such an important point there. And it's something that it repeatedly comes back to me. And it just it's just so important to remember that, you know, we as consultants or, you know, if you're listening and you're a coach or you're a lawyer or whatever, we are not full-time marketing people. 90% of the material on marketing out there is written by full-time marketing people who love marketing. They want to spend all their time doing marketing. They want to do the most advanced, most sophisticated marketing. And their audiences are people who are kind of online entrepreneurs who are either spending 100% of their time doing marketing or they have a team doing marketing for them. And so most of the marketing advice you'll get about, you know, 17-step marketing funnels and you've got to have a different message for this type of person and this type of person and this great but that's the 20% out of the 80-20, not the 20% that gives you 80, but the the 20%, the, the, the kind of 80% of work that only gives you a further 20% of impact. As people, people like consultants who most of our time we want to spend working with clients, we've got to focus on the 20% that gives us 80% of the value. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I would I would contend that the hardest part about doing that of those three steps is that first piece, that standout message. I think you would agree. Yeah. T tell us a little bit more about what's involved and because it, it's not like it used to be, right? I would imagine when you started out saying something was probably good enough, it had to be good and valuable and all of that. But, but you know, when there was a dearth of content, putting something out in the marketplace was, was useful, not so anymore. So how do you develop a message that really stands out and gets people's attention? You, you, I think you made an excellent point. I think there's been a squeeze on what, on what I think is the middle ground for most professionals. So, um, I, I, you know, kind of David Meister and others have described it over the years as being that usually three tiers in any professional service business. There's a kind of bottom tier of, of commodity type work. There's a middle tier of kind of 
you know, doing really good work. It's difficult. It's challenging. Really good work. And at the top, you've got the kind of authority, the the the, the rocket science type work. Um, and usually, most of that, most most people survive by doing stuff in the middle, um, where they're really good at what they do. And, you know, 10 years ago, it was difficult for clients to find people who are really good at what they do. So if they found you, they stuck with you. Um, but these days, it's really easy to find people who are good at what they do. And so being good has become a commodity. You know, it's no longer good enough just to be good or to have, you know, to, to again, if you look back 10 years, actually, if, if I think back 20 years, you know, if you imagine when you were growing up, who was the local business expert? It was the bank manager and the accountant because there was such a dearth of business expertise in any kind of smallish town or even relatively biggish town. Well, nowadays, anyone can go online and they can get access to information from the very best in the world. They don't need average level information. It may still be useful but it's no good to them because they can get much better information very, very easily. They can find a specialist or an expert in what they want very, very easily. So that middle ground for people who are good at what they do has been really tightly squeezed. And you need a message that stands out by being different. Um, and that's not, as you said, it's not easy to do that. But if you if you put effort into it, you I've, I've rarely found someone who hasn't got an interesting and good and valuable idea. The problem is that because it because they've been working with it for so long, usually, they don't realise how interesting and different it is. Um, they don't really know what it is they do that's magic to their clients. And you have to kind of ask those clients, you have to get feedback from other people um, for you to realise, oh, right, so no, it, it, everybody else isn't doing this then. This is something that's kind of unique to me and it's really quite valuable. Hang on, maybe I should focus on getting that message out. Maybe I should be brave enough to share that idea and to kind of put my head above the parapet and prepare to get it shot off if people disagree with me. Um, so it is difficult, but it's definitely possible. Well, I, I want to dig into that a little bit deeper because I, I know you're working with a number of clients in your authority breakthrough program, which I want to hear a little bit more about at the end of the call if we can. But I'm curious to hear, are there any particular mindsets that you find are holding people back from building out this distinctive point of view that you call it? Um, well, there are a couple, I think. I mean, one is one is a kind of mindset of, of good enough. And uh, I think it comes from this background that if you've been working, you know, for 10 years, let's say, with clients where you've essentially been replicating what you've learned and what other people have been doing, that's kind of good and it gets good results, but it's not unique to you. Um, the hope is you can continue to do that. And and you, you can't. I mean, client, it's not just that, you know, you know we're not Usually, even if, if you're working physically, you're not competing with someone across the other side of the globe, but you are competing with their ideas. Your clients are usually keeping up with those ideas. They're getting access to them. So unless you're at the top of your game, you're going to look like you're, you're kind of behind and you don't want to be knowing less than your client about your area of expertise. So resting on your laurels is, is, a, is not a great mindset. The other mindset is the one I just mentioned, which is where you don't realise that um, something you're doing is unique to you and really good. And I think what you... What you have to do is just take a step back and take some time out and try and think through what what is it that I have or what I what that I could create that will be different and will make clients sit up and take notice. And I think there are three three characteristics you've got to look for there. You, you have to have ideas that or and by ideas, I mean you mentioned the, the phrase I use a lot, distinctive point of view. And a distinctive point of view is really just your ideas or your spin on things or the way you do things in your particular field um, that's different 
to the way other people do it. And you're looking for three things. You're looking for that thing to be valuable because obviously um, you, you, your clients have to get value from the advice you give them or the methods that you show them. Um, it has to be unique to you. You can't be just replicating what other people are doing. And the final thing is it needs to be disruptive. It needs to challenge your client's status quo. And what I mean by that is that if you have a series of ideas or recommendations or a method of doing things that is a bit different to how your clients are currently doing things, but they've kind of half got it, then that's not that's kind of not enough motivation for them to change. They'll kind of look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty good. We hadn't quite thought of that. But what they're going to do then is they're going to kind of muddle through to try and improve on what they've got rather than think, whoa, that is just really different. We're not doing anything like that or we're doing it completely wrong. We need to hire this guy or girl to come and help us to implement that. So you need all three areas. It has to be really valuable. It has to be different to what others are doing, but it has to also disrupt the status quo of what your client is doing rather than just being incremental improvement. I find that the, out of the three, the one that I think may trouble people the most, and I'm curious if this has been your experience in the uh, in your coaching, is this idea of being disruptive. Mm. No one's going to argue with being valuable. To a certain extent, people aren't going to argue with being unique. I think there may be a fear associated with that. You don't want to be too unique, and that might hold people back. But but how do you how do you be disruptive? How do you create a disruptive idea? I think that's a little bit that's a little bit scary, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's some exercises you can do to help to help you think through. Um, the first thing to to remember is you're not just being disruptive for the sake of being disruptive, um, and it's, you're not just having a disruptive idea that doesn't actually add value. What you're doing is selecting of the universe of of things you do for clients that are valuable. Uh, then you're narrowing down that universe to the things that are substantively different to how other people do things. And then you narrow it down further to the things that are big leaps for your client that are are, are disruptions. Um, so you're not kind of making stuff up just to be disruptive, but you are narrowing down. And out of all the things you could talk about, now, of course, you, when you work with clients, you're still going to do the other stuff with them. You're still going to do the stuff that's kind of universally accepted across your field, that maybe competitors are doing the same. But the thing you focus on in your communication and your marketing are the things you do that are different, valuable and disruptive. And, you, you know, you it's it's kind of like just a, a mental exercise of just thinking through, well, you, for, it's, it's questions you can ask yourself. Um, so f one, one easy question is, what do I do with clients that is really valuable for them, but they're, but they're surprised by? And very often you find that happens. You know, a client raises an eyebrow when you suggest something or they, they argue with you and don't think it's a good thing to do. But when you implement it, it works really well. That's a sign that what, something you're doing is disruptive. Or usually if something you do um, is where you argue with people in your field. If everyone else in your field thinks that, um, you know, you, you're, people should be doing A and you say they should be doing B, usually that's pretty disruptive as well. It's disruptive and different to your competitors, but usually because your competitors thinking infiltrates your clients, usually different to them as well. Another great way of looking at it is to deliberately think of things that are different, almost the opposite of the normal way things are done but then think, who might that be true for? So if we, one of the biggest, um, I think, problems that businesses have is they tend to look at things, on, we tend to look at all things in terms of absolutes and black and whites or, or averages. So um, on average, well, well let, let, let's take a, a particular bit of, of, of wisdom, for example. So, you know, if you ask pretty much any salesperson, they tell you 
that fits, you know, selling face to face is better than, than than selling by email, for example. You get more impact if you sell face to face. And that's kind of generally true. But the thing with generalizations is there are there are often exceptions. So if you want a, dis- a disruptive point of view, take a take a generalization, invert it. So you're inverting um, you know, face-to-face sales works the best to say face-to-face sales works the worst. You're much better off not speaking to a client if you want to sell to them. That sounds ludicrous. But then think, well, who might that be true for? Well, that might be true for people who are introverts, for example, that don't want to speak to other people. It might be true where clients are really, really pushed for time. It might be true, et cetera, et cetera, where you're long distance from the client and you can't meet them face to face. So just by doing little exercises like that, you can come up with with conditions where something that's disruptive is also really valuable. So they're, they're kind of little things you can play around like that. You can you can jump ahead of trends. So um one of my clients, for example, in the Authority Breakthrough Program, um, it works in financial services and he does a lot of stuff with leadership for and by millennials. Now, the typical um, leadership style in financial services tends to be very top down and it tends to work on the assumption that everyone is, is kind of money driven. Now, that's not that's never always been the case, but it's certainly not the case for the, the current generation of millennials that are coming through that are looking for more from business. So what um, Jasper's done in this case is he's taken a lot of the thinking from other sectors that are kind of ahead and he's imported it and added it to his own experience in financial services to come up with a point of view about leadership both of and by millennials um, and motivating millennials or, or more actually helping them to find their own motivation that's different to what everyone else is doing and it's different to what those clients are doing currently. Um, but he's done it by kind of importing ideas from other areas because he's, he's latched onto an important trend that's happening and he's found other fields that are ahead of the game that, that enabled him to have an idea that's disruptive to his, cur- to his current client base. It seems to me like a key part of this this puzzle is the idea of empathy, because you may not, I mean, you have always have the curse of knowledge, right? You know so much about your industry and your field and your service <laughs> that you may not think of something as particularly disruptive, but if you look at it from the eyes of the client, it may be disruptive. That's right. And that's where, you know, the the, the real value of, of actually working with clients day to day in the field helps because you, you get feedback from them on things you're, on things you're working on. You can, and, and if you, you know, if you if you start to see those raised eyebrows, those questions, um, then that's a sign to something to take note of that something that you're doing is innovative, innovative and different. Um, so it's a combination of kind of you know you're being a, an understanding of your client without going to their side of the fence where you can't see anything different to them. You kind of with them, you empathise with them, but you can also spot things that they're missing. So listen, Ian, for folks who are listening to this and they're thinking, yeah, okay, I get it. I I think I need to have certainly a more distinctive point of view than I do now. I see the value in this exercise. Do you have some kind of a a high level process you can walk us through for them to follow? Yeah, well, um, fairly, fairly straightforward process of doing this for a distinctive point of view. Um, Start off by with with what I would call a kind of like brainstorming exercise where you just ask yourself some tricky questions. So you're asking yourself questions like, you know, what are what are the kind of common um, mistakes, the common misconceptions, the common problems that clients have um, that that where I have a you know a solution for that's that's not just something they where a client has said you know I'd like X, but where have I, where they're they're repeatedly making mistakes and I'm able to kind of correct them, or where do you disagree? 
with accepted wisdom in your field? Or, you know, what what do you think are the most, what are the things that really annoy you about, about what everyone is doing in your field? I mean, in our kind of field of, of marketing for, profe- for professional services, there has been a wave in the last two or three years of, hey, the way of getting high-end clients is specialise, run some Facebook ads, then an automated webinar, then a call and bring them on as clients. It's really easy. And there's just everyone is doing that. So so look at what everyone else is doing, what's, what's overused, and then think, well, you know, does that really work? Usually, often, often it doesn't. Um, but it, but if it does, where are the cases where it doesn't work? How can I fit my point of view around that? Look for areas where your clients are surprised. You know, the areas you don't want to give away that are kind of your best kept secrets or big new trends, either in your field or you can import from other fields or any research, any any anything coming out of um, science like psychology often affects management and marketing um, or other fields of research or, or, or research in the field that's identifying new things going on that you can uh, that you can use or you know little light bulb moments you've had yourself I mean I remember years ago reading uh, Gene Schwartz's Breakthrough Advertising and his his concept of, uh, of prospect awareness and huge light bulbs went off for me at the time I thought oh of course that explains an awful lot well if a light bulb is going off for you when you for something that you now do with your clients, um, then chances are a light bulb will go off for clients if you properly explain it to them. So start off with um, just brainstorming all sorts of ideas in those different categories. Then look at those ideas, try maybe combining a couple. Um, think of who those ideas are true for and who it isn't true for. So you might find you've got a brilliant idea, but it's not true for everyone, but it is true for some people. And in which case you can focus on those as a particular group of target clients. Think about the so what. So which of these ideas are really important, really, really valuable? You know, kind of you know, which ones are the most important to the world, really? Which have the biggest impact on your clients? Which ones are the most original? Which ones are the most distinctive from what your competitors are doing? Which ones are, are, offer the biggest challenge to your clients? Which ones would you really like to have your name associated with? And which ones really play to your strengths? You know, if, if you were to then go and implement that with a client, does that does that play play well to your strengths so once you've done that try and summarize that idea in a couple of in a couple of sentences and ideally maybe come up with an, an analogy for it or you know if you probably remember from back from the days of re-engineering the analogy hammer came up with was the analogy of paving the cow paths the way people were currently doing it implementation was they were taking their existing processes and just running you know basing the computer systems around the way they currently do, do things which was based on old manual methods. And he said, well, that's like looking at the random paths a cow takes across a field and then paving those instead of putting a straight line across the field in the best place. So that idea of caving the, uh, paving the cow paths was the analogy that he used to help people understand re-engineering. So if you can come up with a, an analogy for, your, for, for the ideas you've got, that can really help explain it to people. Um, and once you've got that, I would go out and validate it very quickly. So talk to people who, you know, who are um, friends and contacts, you know, who kind of understand the field, smart people who don't know your field, but who can give you feedback on whether the idea is understandable, whether you're communicating it clearly. Go to some kind of trusted clients and get their feedback as to whether this makes sense to them. You know, and, and you, you absolutely won't get everyone coming back saying, yes, I really like this. And if everyone did come back and say, yes, I really like this, it probably wasn't disruptive enough. But what you do want is at least at least people recognising that, you know, A, I understand this, B, it's dealing with an important area, and C, you want some people coming back going, whoa, hang on, I'd not thought of that. So you want that kind of visceral reaction that people have to it. And then 
the, the the really key thing to do once you've got initial validation that the idea is quite good is you need to turn into a methodology or a model that you can then implement and communicate with people um, and use as the basis of your authority as you're establishing it. So if you look at most authorities, we tend to think that authorities are, are you know, people who've worked the longest in a field and have, uh, have kind of got the most experience, and the most extensive knowledge, but that's actually very rarely the case. If I use the, the example of, of physics, for example, you know, the person we think of as the biggest authority in the field of physics is Einstein. Well, Einstein isn't known as an authority, in, or wasn't known as an authority in physics because he knew everything about physics. It was because he came up with his theory and theories of relativity. So it was a kind of big idea in the field um, and a model and a methodology. And, um, and you know, before that, we had Lord Kelvin. We had, uh, with I'm going to, well, we got Newton with his laws of motion. We got Marie Curie with radioactivity, uh, Boyle with his kind of structure of the atom, etc. Um, no, sorry, Niels Bohr with his structure of the atom. Um, so... Uh, authorities tend to be people associated with a very clear idea or a model or a methodology. So if you're going to be communicating and want to establish yourself as an authority, if you look in the field of, of business, you, you know, Michael Porter's Five Forces, you've got Tom Peters created the 7S model for McKinsey, you've got Jim Collins with his good to great model of the things companies need to do to make that transition, etc., etc. It's not it's not. Um, encyclopedic knowledge that establishes you as an authority it's an insightful idea so you need to be able to communicate that insightful idea and that's usually done best through a model or a methodology and, a, and an associated analogy yeah one one idea that comes to mind just in terms of going out and validating the idea with a prospect or with a client i found it to be particularly useful to do that in person that, you know, next time you're in the office with a client, after you're done with your engagement, you know, just say, hey, I've got an idea that I'm working on. I really love your feedback on it. Explain it to them. And then I, and I find that just their body language, their facial expressions, like that really tells it all. You know, observe the way they react in real time and you get a lot of priceless feedback that way. You do. It, it's, um, you, you know, obviously, if you can't reach people, you need to use email and other methods. But being able to see them and their reaction is really valuable. And ideally, find an environment where you can draw it. You know, communication through pictures is really valuable. You know, you get if you're able to kind of sketch out your idea. And that's why I say, you know, create a model for it, whether that model is. And if you think about it, most of the great ideas we have in business are encapsulated by pictures. So, you know, whether that's the, the Boston Consulting Group's growth share matrix or Porter's five forces or his value chain model or whatever it might be, usually it's easiest to describe these things in pictures. Um, and it's easier for clients to get it when you draw a picture. The experience curve is another one. Um, so if you can get a flip chart or a whiteboard or even just a piece of paper and kind of sketch it for the client and show them how you think what, what you're thinking of ideally they'll pick up the pencil and start drawing their own additions to it and, and making their making it their own as well and giving some valuable feedback that way excellent listen ian just to wrap this up do you mind telling us a little bit about your authority breakthrough program and where people can go if they want to learn more about it yeah, well, you know what? Best thing isn't to learn about the Authority Breakthrough Program because the Authority Breakthrough Program is quite an expensive paid program. People come on to work with me to develop their distinctive point of view um, and then to learn the marketing methods that get them directly to their ideal clients and then to do structured follow-up with them so they can bring them on board as paying clients. But the best way to get into it is to do what I call the five-day authority challenge. So it's a, it's a free program. It's five days of videos talking you through the steps 
that are needed to to position you as an authority in your field, including, um, you know, figuring out where to focus, coming up with your ideas, your distinctive point of view, and then figuring out then how to get that in front of your ideal clients and the best ways of following up. Um, And if people want to get a hold of that, as I say, you can sign up at ianbrodie.com forward slash 5DAC for 5-Day Authority Challenge. It's completely free. You get, like, as I said, a video a day. It's usually about 10, 15 minutes. Exercises with a video. You can sign up for a Facebook group where you can share your ideas, your progress, share your emerging point of view with other people in the group. There's about 750 people um, in the group at the minute, and we're all giving each other feedback, contributing, adding to other people's ideas. It's a really great atmosphere in the group. Um, and you you get a long way there without paying me anything by joining the five day authority challenge. Yeah, no, I did take a scan through the Facebook group and it's, it looks really, really engaging. And here's a, here's a bit of a pro tip to folks. I mean, Ian alluded to it, but if you really want Ian's feedback on your ideas, go and post in the Facebook group. That's a pretty good way to do it. Plus you'll get tons of great uh, feedback from other, other people in the group. So I'm going to drop a link to the five day authority challenge here in the show notes. Ian, otherwise, it's been a real pleasure. This has been incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure. Cheers. Hey, it's Ahmed here again. Before I let you go, there are two things I want you to do. The first is, if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play by visiting forecast.fm and clicking on the relevant link. While you're at it, please do leave us a rating or a review because it helps more people discover the show. The second thing is I want you to grab my free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms. Inside the course, you will get a step-by-step framework to help you generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com and you can spell out five or use the number either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.